Exodus 14. And we're going to drop in this morning at verse 5. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fist raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pi-Hiaroth, across from Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just be calm. Years ago, I bought a book about getting to know God. And the introduction to the book was inspiring. Um, I got excited when I read it. And promising about what was to follow. But the author quickly shifted from relationally knowing God to theologically knowing God. And for me, it became just another book of theology. His, his message, as I understood it, was we can know a lot of things about God. And to him, that was getting to know God. Later, another book was published with a more promising title. And the author of this other book had the same impression about the first book that I had, that it was a disappointment, that it did not help people get to know God relationally. And this second author concluded, we really can't know God relationally the way we desire to. But we can know a lot of things we're supposed to do for God. So let's know what we're supposed to do and, and do it. If you desire God, the experts are telling us, learn more, do more. I would say the experts in evangelical Christianity. And I have Catholic friends who say some of the experts there also. And the evangelicals will ask you, well, are you reading your Bible enough? Um, are you reading it right? Do you even know how to read your Bible? Um, do you know the evangelical way uh, or the dispensational way or whatever? Um, 
Are you praying enough? Are you praying right? Is your doctrine sound? Are you going to church? Are you tithing? You do know what tithing means, don't you? Um, uh, Are you tithing enough? Are you giving enough? Are you supporting every possible cause that comes your way? Um, Are you volunteering? Do you work in the church nursery? Uh, What? Don't you love God? Um, Are you sold out enough? There's a tricky one. um, Because being sold out 100% isn't enough. Now we're demanded a fictitious 110%. There's no such thing, but you know, if you're not doing that, then you're not sold out enough. And the implicit promise is if you do all the things you're supposed to do and you do them right, the result will be intimacy with God. And it never happens. It doesn't work. Which is a big disappointment, and it's the reason that... Thousands of evangelical Christians feel disenchanted with their faith today. It's why they're burned out. It's why they're looking for something else. And so what you seldom hear from the experts is be still and know that I am God. Or just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. And though it's seldom heard, that's Moses' message in this climactic moment in the story of Exodus. Let's run through this story uh, quickly. In the first four verses, okay, do you ever stop and ask for directions? Moses is out in the wilderness. (laughs) Real men don't, right, Alex? Um, uh, (laughs) Real men just keep getting loster and loster. But... um, Moses is out in the wilderness with all the folks and he gets directions from God. And God leads Israel into a trap. He he leads them where their path goes right to a sea. The Red Sea perhaps or the Sea of Reeds. They're at the shore of a sea. Um, They could have gone the via... uh, Whoa. I uh, just lost the, the, the road by the ocean, the coast highway. Um, that was one of the main highways. The other was the Via Patrice, which was a patriarch road uh, that went somewhat inland from there. And then there was the Rift Valley Road. And God didn't lead them any of those ways. He took them right to the shore of a sea. And um, he explained his intention. He said, Pharaoh is going to think that you're wandering aimlessly in the desert, that you've lost your way, you don't know where you're going, and uh, he'll chase after you. You Isn't that good news? And, um, And he tells Moses, that's my intention. My purpose is to display my glory, and so the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Um... I think that the display of God's glory and knowing God um, go together. It's often through his glory that we learn something about him or we get to know him. I don't know, have you ever looked at the ocean and just said, Lord God, that is beautiful. You did a wonderful job with that. 
or that sunrise this morning? Uh, what artistry? Um, I could take a picture of it and people wouldn't believe it's real. It's so beautiful. And the heavens declare the glory of God. Also in the New Testament, Paul says, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined his light into our hearts, bringing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So especially in Jesus and the glory of his life, we come to know God. But here, God just wants the Egyptians to learn who he is, um, not necessarily come to know him personally. In verses 5 through 9, the Egyptians changed their mind. We let our slaves go. What were we thinking? And they chase after them and catch up to them. Now, we have to appreciate about warfare at this time and for the next uh, couple of hundred years at least is that the Israelite army and now you can hardly call them an army these are not trained soldiers these were slaves and they're going to fight trained soldiers but the Israelite army in fact Israel in general had this phobia about chariots and they felt disadvantaged when they fought in a valley or on the plains and their advantage was fighting in the mountains. Um, that was a fair fight for them because they did not have chariots. It, and what am I saying? I'm saying that here are all these slaves on foot and army tanks are bearing down on them. That's what it feels like. So, um, verses 10 through 14, the people see the Egyptians immediately they panic, and they start whining. Uh, and Moses got up, and he said, would you like a little cheese with that wine? <laughs> Moses gets up, and he wants to calm their nervous systems. He wants to reassure them. Be calm. In verse 15, uh, and this is pretty much then the bulk of the chapter, God tells Moses, why are you crying out to me? Which is funny. Moses wasn't crying out to him as a people. And Moses was telling them, just, you know, relax. Um, but I think that God is generalizing. Uh, and besides, Moses was standing there. Maybe he, he was crying out. But, uh, uh, but Moses wasn't crying out, oh, Lord, what do we do? It was like, Lord, why'd you give me all these people? <laughs> uh, they're like you know, adolescents, all of them, junior high school, they're all, you know, rebellious teenagers and they just are giving me a heartache. God says, get moving, move out. And he tells him what to do. He says, you're going to raise the staff over the water and they're going to split apart. The people are going to escape. What we learn here. Um, Remember, there's the cloud and the fire. Uh, during the daytime, there was a column of cloud that they followed. And when day turned to night, the cloud turned to fire, a column of fire. And we're told now that there's an angel present in this column of cloud and fire. Um, the angel of the Lord was present in the bush that burned, the, 
got this whole thing started uh, that Moses encountered in chapter 3. And so here's the angel leading them, but he changes positions. He goes from in front of Israel to behind them and provides something of a barrier between them and the Egyptian army. So the Egyptian army stops before they actually reach the people, and that's how they spend the night. The people of Israel on one side and the Egyptians on the other. By the way, I'm just going to throw this out there. Reading this chapter, uh, if you want to go through it on your own and study it, notice that Israel now is just referred to as the people. They are the people. They're not the children of Israel. They're the people. And um, that's because they're no longer defined by Egypt. They are now a people unto themselves and unto the Lord who created them and defines them. So um, Moses raises the staff, the water parts, the people cross through. The Egyptians, at some point, the cloud lifts or something, they see them crossing through, and uh, they chase after them. And you've seen the movie, you've read the book, you know the story. Uh, The people of Israel make it safely through, and the water closes over the Egyptians, and they're all goners. Um, Then verse 31 closes off with the effect this has on Israel. Uh, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. All right, that's our our bird's eye view. And uh, now we're going to move in for a closer look. I think that the most dramatic moment in this story is also the most instructive. In verse 10, there's this two-step statement. And literally, it's, they lifted up their eyes and behold. They lifted up their eyes and behold. That's not redundant. It's not, um, they, they looked and looked. It's rather, they lifted up their eyes and what did they see? When the storyteller says, behold, he's talking to us. He's changing the point of view of the reader. And we are now in this scene with them, looking through the eyes of Israel, and we see the army of Egypt charging toward us with the sea at our backs. And we panic. In other words, we, we feel their panic. If that's my car, they can have the radio. It doesn't work anyway. Oh. Um, And what does Moses do? What does Moses do about this? They lifted up their eyes, and behold, we're looking at this. What does he do? He redirects their sight. And he redirects our sight. There's a similar thing that happens in 2 Kings with, with a different outcome. But Elisha is this incredibly gifted prophet. He is a seer. He knows things that are going on in other places. God is constantly informing him. And he uses this knowledge 
to protect the king of Israel. He'll send him messages, and he'll say, don't go here, there's an ambush waiting for you. Don't go there, another ambush. Well, the king of Syria gets furious because he thinks that there's a leak in his cabinet, that someone's leaking information. So um, he's yelling at them, all right, who's going to tell me which one of you is a traitor? And they said, it's, it's not us. It's this prophet in Israel. He knows what you're thinking in your bedchamber. And he said, well, go get him. So a contingent of soldiers go to get Elisha uh, when they find out the village he's in. And the morning that they arrive, and they've got their chariots and their soldiers, and they're all stationed around this small village, Elisha's servant gets up early in the morning, he goes out there, and he sees them, and he panics. This is Israel lifting up their eyes, and behold, this army. And um, he goes to Elisha, and he, he says, Master, we're undone. And uh, Elisha says, relax. There are more on our side than on their side. And then he prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes. And when his servant's eyes are open, he sees God's army of angels above the Syrian army. And instead of attacking the Syrian army, Elisha says to the commander of the angels, blind them. So now all these Syrians are, are blinded. And Elisha walks out to their commanding officer and says, what are you doing? What are you looking for? They said, we're, we're looking for Elisha. And he says, well, he's not here. Follow me. And he leads them inside the city of Samaria, where he then says, Lord, open their eyes. And the king of Samaria has all these prisoners of war now, and he asks Elisha, what shall I do? What shall I do? Should I slaughter them all? And the, Elisha says, no, uh, spare them and send them home. But again, what does he do? He redirects his servant's sight. His servant is looking at this physical army, and he's panicked and all undone. And Elisha says, no, there are more on our side than theirs. You could have never known that standing there. But with his sight redirected and with Elisha's prayer, his eyes are open and he sees more. Watch and see how the Lord rescues you. Watching is an active mode of seeing. You're not merely observing, you're looking for something when you watch. You're looking for something to happen. Israel's situation was peculiar because they didn't know what they were looking for. They did know, not know how it would arrive, and they did not know when it was going to arrive. Moses just had them watching. Moses hadn't been told yet how they were going to get out of this scrape. But he knew God well enough by now, and he trusted God enough to know that they were. So he could reassure them. Just watch. Let's watch and see how God takes care of this, not knowing what, how, or why. Jesus put his disciples in the same peculiar position. He said, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn. 
But whenever he comes, he will reward the servant who is ready. Jesus wants his disciples to always be awake, to always have this second sight or this redirected sight. Always have this this knowledge that there's going to be a what and a how and a when. And he wants them to be watching for when it happens so they don't miss it. I don't know what God might do. I don't know how God will do it. I don't know when. But if I am watching for his hand to move in my world, I'll see it. This may not, pardon me, this is not the way I usually go through life, waiting to see what God's going to do next. But this is the essence of contemplative prayer. In contemplative prayer, we redirect our sight. We go from the material to the spiritual. We find it in Paul's explanation to the Corinthians. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. And in the next chapter, he says, For we live by believing and not by seeing. Actually, I prefer the old version. We walk by faith, not by sight. Looking at the invisible sounds odd, if not silly. But that's what believers do. In the book of Hebrews, it's a New Testament book, but it's describing Moses. It says, it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt not fearing the king's anger, he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. He had redirected his own sight. It's not what he saw when he was first called to this task and he tried to dodge it, but it's what he came to see. He came to see him who is invisible. And he saw him with a new set of eyes. It wasn't It wasn't with his physical eyes that he ever saw God, but he did see God sufficiently that that conditioned his life. What this means is that we restrain our normal busyness, our busy running here and there, looking for God, looking for how we can know him or get closer to him. We restrain our busy thoughts buzzing like flies in our brain. Uh, and, and buzzing with anxieties. We stand still and we watch and we wait and we listen. Uh, for what? A slight movement? A quiet whisper? A gentle impulse within ourselves? For whatever subtle way God may speak. It's not always the column of cloud or fire or the parting of a Red Sea. It's not always a mountain moving or a tree uprooting. Contemplative prayer is about seeing. And it's also about being. Stand still and just be in this present moment. You don't have to be anywhere else right now. You don't have to be at any other time. 
And the more centered we can be in the here and now, the more we become aware of a presence that surrounds us and that we can yield to that presence and watch for that presence, however God wants to manifest himself to him. We're not pushing ourselves to another place or another time. We are being still and fully present in this place and at this time. And I think that if we begin with just one activity every day, just say, okay, from now on, when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm going to be fully present. Or when I'm in the shower, I'm going to be fully present to that moment in the shower. I'm going to be there, not someplace else in my mind. I'm going to be there in my whole self. And becoming fully present to that one activity every day, we just might start seeing differently. That's not our usual way of seeing. We're looking ahead. We're looking behind. We're looking out to where we're going or where we've been. And we're not just right here, right now. And to bring ourselves right here, right now, we just might start seeing differently. You know, God created this world and he put us in it. You know, Christians who who think that the body is a prison for the soul and the world is uh, a hostile, evil environment... Heaven's angels are on the move. They're surrounding us and protecting us. They, they, miss, they miss the fact that this is the space God created for us and where he intends to reveal himself to us, where we, we meet with him. The world is a window. If, if for me, the world is all there, there is, then when I look at it, I see my own reflection. That's all. Or I see the reflection of this world, and that's all. That's all there is. So I look at the window, and I see what's bouncing off of it. Reflection of myself and of my world. But faith sees light on the other side of the window so that we see through this world to that which is beyond. We see the world, but we know there's a mystery hidden in it. Mysteries hidden everywhere. And seeing differently is looking at something and asking, what is your mystery? And if our attention is drawn to a blossom on a cactus along the trail we walk, then we can pause and say, what is the mystery you're hiding? And allow our spirit to look through it 
and not just at it. Because looking at, we see only reflections of this world. Looking through, we see differently, and we see mystery. I was reading in the Gospel of John this last week, and in the last chapter, you know, Jesus takes Peter aside and he has this intense conversation with him. But just prior to that, they, they, they catch this huge load of fish. And it says that Peter dragged the net to shore. And John notices there were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now, John was one of those fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had called to be a follower of his, and he promised he'd make him a fisher of men. So he knew about boats, and he knew about nets. And for some reason, he thinks that this footnote is important. All these fish and the net wasn't torn. Were their nets flimsy? Is this special? Wow, you know, th- this was a great net. We kept that net. We framed it. We hung it on the wall. You know, this net did not tear. 153 large fish. Well, I don't think that the nets were that flimsy because in Luke 5, there's a similar huge catch, and there's no mention of the nets being strained or tearing or not tearing. I wonder if John saw differently. Maybe he had begun to see differently. He learned from Jesus that mystery lies just below the surface of literal reality. And Jesus is doing this all through John's gospel. And maybe John has caught on to that. And maybe now he doesn't see the net as just a net. Perhaps there was a new revelation that came to him either at that moment or later on, or even as he's writing about it, saying, you know, there were 153 fish in that net, and the net didn't tear. You know what Jesus is telling Peter? He's saying, Peter, when you were young, you would throw on your clothes and go wherever you wanted to, but now other people are going to bind you and take you where you don't want to go. And John says, he was telling Peter how he was going to die. Pretty soon, they're going to start hauling in nets full of people, hundreds of them, thousands of them. And that means for the rest of their lives, the apostles are going to have lots of work, lots of travel, many hardships, and persecution you guys are going to have more than you can handle. But the fabric of your own lives and of your community will not tear apart. In spite of all the demands made on you, all the pressures, all all the stresses and strains, all the stretching, you're still going to hold all that God gives you to hold on to because God's with you. Your nets won't tear. It was still only a net, but John saw through it. He saw the mystery. Perhaps. You know, I'm making this part up, by the way. But um, <laughs> perhaps. For some reason, he thought that needed to be said. 
I'm telling you my conjecture. So Israel sees the Egyptians, they panic, and Moses says, see, three times in verse 13, see what the Lord is going to do, because these Egyptians that you see now, you'll never see again. The word to see, this Hebrew word, occurs two more times um, in verses 30 and 31. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of Egypt, the Egyptians that day, and the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him, and they put their faith in Yahweh and in Moses, his servant. So now they are seen differently, aren't they? They're seen differently. Their, their vision has now spawned faith. Um, faith improves our sight, and seeing improves our faith. Filled with awe is, filled with awe before Yahweh is the New Living Translation taking great liberties with the Hebrew text. Um, They saw and they feared the Lord. Same word for fear, when they saw the Egyptians and they feared. In fact, it's a, the same word in both 10 and verse 13. Um, but when it's used of God, the meaning is generally reverence. They saw what God had done and they felt a deep reverence for him. Also, the word translated faith could also be translated trust um, and might be a better translation. At least faith always has this effect. It produces the behavior of trust. Faith always brings us to trust. Faith is not, is not something that you have that's like a bit of magic, and with it you can command things to happen. It is a reliance on, a surrender to, a confidence in God that allows you to be anxiety-free. God has been teaching me, Chuck, when you ask me for things that trouble you and you finish your prayer, don't keep thinking about it. Don't keep worrying about it because you're only undoing your prayer. You're sabotaging it. Trust me. And let go of those anxious thoughts. Do you see what happened then when they stood still and saw? Their fear was tamed. Panic turned to wonder. Anxiety turned into reverence. One morning this past week, I asked God in the morning for encouragement. I, you know, if I need it, I don't mind asking for it. God, would you give me some kind of encouragement today? 
And I felt like he said, well, what kind of encouragement do you want? And usually I say, winning the lottery, <laughs> you know, $40 million, that you know, <laughs> would do it. Um, but I didn't. This particular day, it was the mood I was in probably. I said, let me know today that I've helped someone. And late that afternoon, I was suddenly smiling to myself because I realized someone told me, thank you, Chuck, this has really helped. And I was so encouraged, I couldn't help but say, thanks, Father. That was pretty cool. Tomorrow I ask for the lottery. <laughs> if I had not asked for it and then looked for it, I would have missed it. I wouldn't have been conscious of what God was doing, what he was allowing me to do. And, and the pleasure that it gave me to realize I had done something in God's name and, and it was useful to somebody. There's always more than meets the eye. And looking makes the difference. Can I see it? I don't know. But I can guarantee if you don't look, you won't see it. Melissa McCune told me about a friend of hers who told her um, people are waiting for the zombie apocalypse. It's already happening. Everyone walking around like this with their cell phones. <laughs> so true. If that's how you're walking around, you're not seeing differently. If we start to see differently, we'll begin to think differently. Begin to feel differently. Begin to act differently. Perhaps we won't see a homeless person or poor student as problems, but as persons in need of love. And seeing differently, we'll think differently, we'll feel differently, we'll act differently. Some of us, when we hear differently, will admit, yeah, I could use a little tweaking here and there. Others of us want a complete overhaul. Whatever. It will begin when we see differently. The difference doesn't usually come in one great epiphany, by one miracle, but through a combination of ongoing grace and discipline. God provides the grace, and we practice the discipline of sitting in quiet, listening, fully present, seeing differently, and then carrying that with us and, and coming back to it occasionally in the day. Whenever we have to wait somewhere in traffic, in a line in the grocery store, um, in the doctor's office, this is an opportunity to practice. I can practice standing here behind this person who I know has more than 15 items. 
It's a good time to practice and just to breathe. As for grace, as for grace, it's like the air that surrounds you. It's always there, and there will always be more than enough of it than you will ever need. Would you stand with me, please? I feel, I feel really good about sending you off today because I know you go into the hands of God. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.